0: So, um, this morning, how does anyone change? How does anyone change? We're carrying on our series in the Psalms, and that's the question I want to ask you. Do you think you can change? How can you change? So, some um, kind and well-meaning member of our congregation, let's call him Adam, because that's his name, decided for reasons only really known to him, that he would include um, a few people on a text exchange with a challenge to do a hundred push-ups every day for a month. And he included me on that. Now, obviously, looking at me, you know as well as I do, I don't need to do 100 push-ups a day, just look at me. Anyway, he included me on it, and then various other people got quite excited about this, who were on the chain, and then brought other people into the chain. So there's now about 150 million people, as far as I can tell, on this chain who are telling everyone when they've done 100 push-ups, and they do 100, check, bing, 100, check, bing. When I was in the UK at 3 a.m., I would get 100, check, 100, check, ping, at 3 a.m., waking me up. And it carried on, and I'm not doing it um, because I don't need to. All right. Uh, but um, I also thought I would, um, because they wouldn't go away, I thought it would die out, but it still seems to have quite a lot of enthusiasm with it. I thought I would... Um, enter into this by saying, I'm very sorry, everyone, that I haven't been telling you about my 100 push-ups. It's because I've been praying and meditating on scripture and fasting, and I've been meditating particularly on one scripture, which is 1 Timothy 4.8, which says this. Let me just read it so I don't get it wrong. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value in all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And I thought that would stop them, but it hasn't. They carry on doing it. Now, I'm joking, of course. Paul is right. There is some value to physical training, and I'll be honest, I could probably do with some physical training. It's good when we're fit, isn't it? It's good when we're healthy because our brains work and we sleep well and we feel better about ourselves and we eat better and we have more discipline, and it does all those things. We all know this. But this morning, I want to talk about a more fundamental sense of becoming better people. Because I'm sure you're aware that as we change our appearance, as we go to the gym, as we do these things, as we look after ourselves, as we work on ourselves, it does change something. But it doesn't change the more fundamental parts of who we are as people. It doesn't change our souls. It will never completely scratch the itch deep within us to be fundamentally better people. And what I'm talking about is what David talks about in the psalm I'm about to read, about having joy, about having gladness deep down inside of us, about having purity and steadfastness and sustenance and above all, freedom. So how can we change? How can we become free people? Free, ultimately, from the past, no longer tied to the things that we've done, or the things that have been done to us, freedom in the present, so that we're not longer stuck in patterns of repeating behavior where tomorrow, we know, is going to be the same as today, because today was the same as yesterday, and it's just going over and over and over again, and freedom, of course, from the future, sorry, for the future to have a hope, to have a deep uh, confidence that things are going better, that things are going to be better for us and for the people we know and love. That's the change I want to talk about. So, Psalm 51. Let me read this to you. Very famous. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, God, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. A very famous psalm, as no doubt you will have heard um, a lot, you may be very familiar with it. It's the fourth of what are known as seven penitential uh, psalms. They are in this collection of psalms. And they are about personal uh, confession and repentance. And this one has this very poignant uh, little subtitle under the heading, which is, for the director of worship, a psalm of David, after Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, as you will remember, David, king of Israel, good king, He's very good, but he's there being king of Israel, and then one day he decides to take a walk along some rooftops. Why he walks along some rooftops is unclear until, oh, look, look what I've seen, having had a little walk along some rooftops, a naked woman bathing. Ah, that's why David's up there, walking along rooftops, and then he sees Bathsheba, he sleeps with her, uh, she conceives a child, he then has her husband um, killed in battle, and then he tries to cover the whole thing up. Good old David. And he shows no remorse. He tries to keep everything secret. Murder, adultery, abuse of power, cowardice, it's all in there. And it's only when Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him with what he's done that he actually acknowledges that he's done anything wrong at all. Now, whether or not this psalm was actually written by David, it probably wasn't. But for our purposes, let's assume that it was. Um, But really, it's been used, and this is the point of it, it's been used by the people of Israel to personally come to God and say, this is what I have done, and I remember that David has done something similar. And it's used by Christians ever since to do the same sort of thing. But ultimately, and this is very important, this psalm is not really about saying sorry. It is that, but it's not just that. It's so much more than that. It is about changing as people. It is a blueprint for change, to stop being the people that we don't want to be and to start being the people we do want to be. So, how do we change? Well, before we get onto that question, we have a preliminary question, which is is it even possible to change? Do people actually change? Let me let you into a little secret, just as someone who is almost 13 years married. I know, congratulations, me. And to a lesser extent, Hannah. Uh, Yes, uh, 13 years married. Um, People, when they get together with someone, they have this first sort of um, initial period of, oh, they're just, it's infatuation. They're just, a mate. they can't do anything wrong. They're amazing. They're just amazing, aren't they? And then after a little while, you start seeing a few tiny little things that aren't quite that amazing. And you go, hmm, that's a bit annoying, but it's okay. I will change them. I will change them because I can do that. And then you're living with them for a bit, and then going, they're not changing. Why aren't they changing? I am trying to change them, and they're not changing. And then after a while, you go, wait a second. These things are real, really serious. They're not changing. Is this all been a massive sham? And then after a while, if you want a happy marriage, you get to a place of going, actually, they're probably just always going to be like that. And it's OK. Consider the dishcloth. You've all used a dishcloth, I hope. So imagine you've just wiped a surface. And you've used your dish dishcloth, and then <laughs> you've used your dishcloth, that wasn't tongues. You've used your dishcloth, and then you decide to do something with your dishcloth. There are two places to put the dishcloth. One is just there by the sink, nicely folded, rinsed out, nice and dry, in a nice kind of um, polite little square by the sink. It can go there, or it can go under the sink in a kind of plastic crate type thing. Again, folded, rinsed out, drying there. Those are the two places it goes. One place it cannot go, but Hannah, my maverick wife, would like to suggest otherwise, is draped over the faucet. That is not where a dishcloth ever, ever should go. I have spent 13 years moving the dishcloth from being draped over as some sort of, um, you know, assault to feng shui, Uh, taking it from there and putting it in either of its two rightful homes. Everyone agrees with me, right? Because we're right. 13 years in, she's just going to carry on doing it. I know. I know. It's so annoying. Also, consider going to a restaurant. Now, in a restaurant, there are a starter a main course, which you guys call an entree, which is incorrect. Entree actually means starter, but you know, you do you. (laughs) Starter, main course, dessert. That is dinner at a restaurant. Small plates, no. Why would I want seven things that I don't really quite like enough that cost almost the same as a main course? I don't want that. Uh, So we should have three things, because you go to a restaurant to order the food that you want to order. Hannah, on the other hand, orders the food that she kind of wants to order, but also hoping that you're ordering the same thing so that we can share. No! Never ever share. I've ordered the thing because that's the thing I want to do. Anyway, the point being, we're never going to change. More seriously, we have our personalities, don't we? And personalities are actually value neutral. They're not good or bad. When we say someone's got a good personality, it means I like that person. (laughs) When they've got a bad personality, it means I don't really click with that person. We just have our personalities. They are our personalities. They are value neutral. And we are going to be our personality. They are unique to us. They are individually to us. They are uh, given to us by God, and that is who we are. And it's better, actually, for us to just realize, let us become who we are. But, of course, you don't have to spend too much time with someone to see that there are also fundamental things that all of us need to change. Irrespective of our personality or our kind of way of looking at the the world, when we're actually honest with ourselves, we cheat or we steal or we bitch, or we moan, or we cause people pain, or we cause ourselves pain, to some degree or another, most of the time. So do we need to change? Yes, we do. The answer has to be, yes, we do. Because we have a problem, and we've all got it. David puts it like this, verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, I had the great privilege of uh, meeting a very new member of our congregation. Uh, She's only a month old. This glorious uh, little bundle of just perfection. She was there fast asleep in her father's arms, and she was perfect. You look at her, and she's just perfect, unadulterated beauty. I'm not actually really a kid... Person. I've got three of them. But I'm not that into kids. I quite like kids. I love my kids. Uh, but even I was there with that child. Going, this is, she is perfect. Now, of course, she's not morally sinful in any way. She's a little baby. She's a month old. All she wants to do is eat, sleep, poop, have her diaper changed. That's about it. Because she's a little baby. So let's get away from ever saying, oh, She's, you know, she's sinful from birth. But at the same time, she looks like us. She looks like us human beings. She looks like a human. She is a human. She has the family resemblance. And the family resemblance, as all of us know, who have grown up into adulthood, is that we are beautiful and perfect and amazing. I'm currently not watching Roger Federer, the greatest tennis player and sportsman and possibly man of all time, bar Jesus, possibly lose the Wimbledon final. He just lost the Wimbledon final, sorry, if you were watching that. No one cares, do you? Anyway, he is a great example of almost perfection. We are beautiful, aren't we? We are brilliant when we are doing what we are supposed to do. But also, all of us have the family resemblance of not always being like that. And this is what David's getting on about. Our ingrained distortion. Our tendency to break things. Whether they are moods, relationships, our own well being, promises, other people's well being, it's all part of this distortion at the heart of things that we all share, the family resemblance of what it is to be human. You see, the biblical picture of sin is much bigger than just, oh, you told a lie, you naughty little boy. The biblical picture of sin is enormous, it's cosmic. The whole of creation doesn't work as it's supposed to. As Hannah um, referenced just earlier, that passage in Romans about Paul saying, the whole of creation is groaning like it's in the pains of childbirth. It is not working properly. Just quickly, the earthquake a few days ago. That earthquake, I hope this doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. That is not God's judgment in any stupid way at all, ever. Please, if anyone tells you that just from me, Slap him in the face. Anyway, it is not God's judgment. It is a sign that things don't work properly in this creation. It is beautiful and awe-inspiring and amazing, but it is also somewhat flawed. (coughs) Excuse me. And things like earthquakes, tsunamis, these are signs of it. It's what Paul's getting on about here. So sin is cosmic. It has affected the whole world order. It is also corporate. We're all sharers of it, and it affects all of us. Now, obviously, we're not all guilty of the same things to the same degree. David, murderer, adulterer, abuser of power. However, we may not be guilty of the same things or to the same degree, but we all share in the same problem. We're all in the same boat. As my favorite Christian author puts it, I think he's written one Christian book, it's brilliant, uh, but he, he puts it like this, it's what bullying the fat kid at school with zits has in common with letting a domestic argument spill out so that you shoot your wife. Obviously not the same things, but of the same thing. And finally, of course, Cosmic, corporate, it's also individual. It's yours and it's mine. You do things. I do things. It's no one else's. And this is what David absolutely refuses to shy away from here in this psalm. Now, I am aware that for many people particularly those who've been brought up in a Christian environment where sin was talked about a lot and a lot in the wrong way. And by the wrong way, I mean sin was talked about because people wanted you to know just how sinful you were and they wanted to rub it in and they wanted to make you feel guilty and they wanted to make you feel terrible about yourself so that you might, I don't know what, I don't think guilt or shame has ever really motivated anyone in a positive way ever. Jesus certainly doesn't do it, and yet churches do it all the time. I want to make you understand just how much God despises your sin, and therefore by extension you. Terrible, terrible non-Christian theology. So I understand if you have been brought up in that how now, when I'm talking about sin, it's making you feel like I really don't want to hear this, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. And yet, I know that there isn't one person, because I talk to a lot of people and they all say the same thing, there isn't one person in this room who doesn't want to change, really. Who would like to be more of themselves in a better way. We all want to be kinder and freer and more loving. We want to be not tied to our past. We want to be free in our present. We want to have hope for the future. All of us want that. People do want to change and in this city in particular, people are always working on themselves to change, which is obviously a great motivation. But in order to change, we have to acknowledge that there's something to change from, and in order to be better, we need to admit that there are things that are doing worse to us and we've got to get rid of them. So what's the process? Well, it's both active and passive. We'll do active first. The active part of it is this. We've got to acknowledge what we're actually like, and we've got to acknowledge what we've actually done in all its unadulterated gore. There is no point, no point, as tempting as it is, to blame shift. Of course there are mitigating circumstances. I don't think anyone has ever done a sin without it being slightly someone else's fault at the same time. I mean, they probably have. But there's always a reason that they deserved it or I was having a bad day or, you know, we find ways of minimizing it, of taking no responsibility for it, those sorts of things. Consider David. David could have said, and this is quite common for people who are in power, who have been caught doing something, they come up in front of the TV cameras and they say something like this. You don't know how much pressure I'm under. I'm the king of Israel, I have all these people, I have all this responsibility riding on my shoulders, and it is weighing me down, and how dare you judge me, you don't know what my situation is like, you know, I am not just the king of Israel, I am also this divinely appointed person who has um, these promises given to me, and everyone is looking to me to be the savior of the world, pretty much, I am a conduit to God, you don't know what it's like, of course I slipped up, but give me a break, he doesn't say that though. Instead, verse 4 I have sinned and I have done evil in your sight. And I think we all are tempted to actually not fully take responsibility for the things that we do. It's just easier. The classic non apology that we hear um, through the media now and again, goes something like this, someone has done something, they clearly have no intention of apologizing, but you know, the public opinion turns against them, and then some sort of PR person says, you've got to go and apologize, and they apologize like this. They go, if I have caused anyone any offense or hurt, then I, from the depths of my heart, am truly sorry, if. If I have. The point is, they really have. But what they are saying in that, if I have caused any offence or hurt, they're saying, if I have, it's not really my fault, it's your fault, because you shouldn't be so sensitive, and I'm not apologizing, really, in any meaningful way. We all do it. But, in order to get rid of the thing that causes us pain, it would be better to get rid of the whole thing that causes us pain, i.e. take full responsibility, let's not beat around the bush. Otherwise, we're really just complaining about either how bad we are or how bad the world is or how bad our situation is or other people. So that's the first part of the active part of change. The second part of the active part is very, very important and is actually the crux of the whole thing, and it's what most people don't get to. They don't get beyond the, oh, we've just got to confess our sins again. Verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. Against God, God only, says David, have I sinned. Utterly extraordinary. You cannot say that. What about, for instance, Bathsheba, who you have used your power to um, basically commit adultery with. She, throughout the narrative, is entirely innocent in the whole proceedings, and yet David has forced himself, really, upon her. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah, her husband, who is now dead? who you have had murdered so that you can actually marry Bathsheba, who you've got pregnant. What about him? What about your family? What about all your people? What about your wife? What about the whole nation who now sees you as a totally flawed, you have let them down, and yet David says, against you, you only, God, have I sinned. So what's going on here? What he's saying is hyperbolic. It's exaggeration to make a much more fundamental point. So, of course, David is completely aware of the people he's actually hurt and caused pain, but he is saying, the most fundamental thing I need to say is against you, you only have I sinned. It's like when we say, that was just the worst thing ever. It probably wasn't the worst thing ever, was it? Or it's when we said, oh, that was so awesome. That is like the greatest thing I've ever, ever had, when it's an ice cream. It probably isn't. But we say it to make the point, And what David is doing here is making this point. What I have lost with God is everything. And everything else actually, in comparison, pales into insignificance. Which is not to say it is insignificant. It's very significant. But compared to what I have lost, it is insignificant. Because the language here is very important. The repetition against you, you only. This is a Semitic, a kind of Jewish language way of making a point. And the point is when you repeat someone's name, it is showing utter love, devotion, affection, and our wholehearted uh, appreciation of someone. So, when um, Martha, you'll remember Martha, she's cleaning in the kitchen. Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet, uh, and Martha gets annoyed because Mary, you should be helping me in uh, the kitchen. And Jesus looks at her and says, "Martha, Martha, come and be with me." Love and affection. When David loses his son, he cries out, "Absalom, Absalom!" Love and affection. When God calls various people, he calls them by their name twice because of his love, his affection, his devotion to them. Abraham, Abraham, uh, Moses, Moses, uh, Simon, Simon, Saul, Saul, and then most poignantly when Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God. It is affectionate, it is loving, it is heartfelt warmth towards someone. And so what David is saying is, I've lost you, God. You see, um, the problem with sin, it is not fundamentally that it causes us or other people pain, although it does and it can. The problem with sin is not ultimately, on a fundamental level, that it um, contravenes God's plans and purposes for the world, although it does and it can. Those aren't the real problems with sin. The real problem with sin is it cuts us off from God. It stops us being with him. And you will know this because on a human level, when you've hurt a friend, being in their presence is difficult because there's this thing that needs to be addressed. And all our sin hurts our relationship with God. It cuts us off from him. So if our confession of sin goes something like, I'm really sorry I did that. I'm sorry that I hurt other people. I'm sorry. We haven't really got it. If our confession of sin goes something like, I'm really sorry that I've contravened your laws and I know that they're supposed to be perfect and right, but to be honest, I don't really know why because, you know, I quite like doing these things, then we haven't really got it. But if we say, I've lost you, I've lost you, I have no longer got that connection and I don't know why and I want it back, then we are beginning to get somewhere close to what actual confession repentance is. It's saying, I need you and I don't want anything to get in the way. And it's only then really that we have hope for change. And David is fundamentally aware of where change happens. It is in the presence of God. It's always in the presence of God. And he says to to God, let me be restored. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Let me have your presence again. I don't want anything to get in the way. Um, I'm coming in to finish. Our kids are ten, eight and five, and we um, talk to to them about saying sorry, and I found myself doing this. I think it's because I grew up with this, but I'm sure you may have had something similar growing up. When you say sorry to your sister, you have to say sorry, but you can't just say sorry and then it's done. You need to say sorry and really mean it, and when you really mean it, it means you'll never do it again. Right? Ever heard anything like that? I find myself saying that to my children. I've realized that this is a half-truth. And actually, being a half-truth is actually quite destructive. Because what it says is, if you're really sorry, you will do everything it takes to never do this again. But have you ever done something that you are actually very remorseful about, very sorry about, and then found yourself doing it again? Right. It happens all the time because we are fickle people who do not do what we think. We do not do what we believe. We do not actually believe what we believe. And then we end up doing the opposite of what we believe. So we can be very remorseful, very sorry for things, and then go and do them straight away again because that's what we're like. Here is something very different. Jesus' word, translated in the Greek for repentance, is this, metanoia. And literally it means to turn around going this direction and then to go that direction. Now, my version of that to my children is go this direction, now you're going that direction, and it's all on you. Jesus' version of that is go that direction, turn around into me. And that's where things fundamentally change, because it is not about us getting as far away from sin as possible. It's about getting us it's about us getting as far into Jesus as possible so that He can change us. It's fundamentally different. And so that's the active part, and here's the passive part. We receive complete, utter forgiveness. Hear David say this, verse 7. Absolute, unwavering, confident belief that he will be completely forgiven. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. When we confess our sins, it is all done, finished, over and done with, completely, once and for all. It does not matter how big or massive this thing is. It doesn't matter how long you've been taking it around with you. You can just leave it and it will be gone forever because of Jesus. Nothing else. Though we are like scarlet, behold, I will make you as white as snow. Is that white enough for you? Know the full confidence that He will get rid of it all, and He will never hear it ab- about it again. It talks about Jesus um, remembering our sins no more. He puts them in His great big forgettery. So even though we might be tempted to go, so I need to go and f- confess that you know that thing I did, He said I've forgotten because I've I don't know what you're talking about. Complete confidence. Receive forgiveness receive forgiveness you don't really need to go and confess to other people i know it's always tempting to confess to other people because it's a bit more immediate and it makes us feel bad about ourselves that we love we love to feel bad about ourselves go and confess them to the one person who wants to get rid of it for you jesus let him show you that you are completely forgiven done and passively we receive joy and gladness And we experience his presence again. Ultimately, we feel his love. As Hannah was saying, circumstances of life can often mean that we don't feel that God is good, that he'll never let us down because of all of the cosmic sin, the corporate sin, the individual sin that we are actually hitting up against all the time. And yet... Despite the circumstances of life, God comes right up to us and fills us with his love and his compassion. He says, my daughter, he says, my son, come to me. I love you. I want you. I am standing with arms open wide. Come to me. And that's how we change. Do you want to change? Do you, picking up on those prophetic words earlier want to not uh, feel like you're having to brace yourself against what God might do with you? To actually let him in to all those secret parts, all those things that you don't really want to talk about, anything that you've been dragging around with you, like big chains around your ankles. Do you want him to actually take that away and set you free? Do you want to not be any longer constrained to your past? Do you want to not any longer feel like history is just repeating itself over and over again and the present is the same as the past and it will be the same in the future? And do you want to have hope that actually this life could actually be really enjoyable and free and loving and good because I am moving on, as Paul says it, from glory to glory. I am becoming more and more and more and more more of me, irrespective of what I do with the dishcloth. Do you want to be set free? because that's what Jesus is offering all the time, over and over and over again. Good. We're done, aren't we?